Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are available. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so you can help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. Today, we'll talk about a shortage in baby formula, continuing inflation problems, and the terrible ideas that are being trotted out to deal with it that would actually make the problems a lot worse. But first, we're going to go to Hong Kong. Um, not physically, because if we went to Hong Kong, if I went to Hong Kong, uh, me, associate producer of our uh, latest documentary feature film, The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom, I would almost certainly be arrested under Hong Kong and China's national security law that exists there. Um, you can learn more about that and the film by going to the hongkongermovie.com. I'm sure we'll bring up Jimmy again in the context of this conversation because the uh, story we got out of Hong Kong last week was the arrest of Cardinal Joseph Zen by Hong Kong authorities. Um, accusations similar to the ones that have been uh, levied at Jimmy Lai and a number of other pro-democracy people in Hong Kong. Uh, he has been released on bail. Uh, so this is a continuation of the crackdowns that we have seen from the Chinese government now pretty much in control of the city and the territory of Hong Kong, that they have been putting the screws to people like Cardinal Zen, people like Jimmy Lai, other people who have been advocates for democracy, for freedom of speech, for freedom of expression, um, for a free press. And this is, uh, to me, a uh, escalation um, of the situation in Hong Kong to now have arrested a Catholic cardinal uh, on these very trumped up charges. Uh, Sam, what was your reaction to the story of Cardinal Zen's arrest and your reaction to the reaction, particularly coming from the Vatican? The first thing I will say is that I'm only surprised that the authorities in Hong Kong had not done this earlier. The reason I say that is because Cardinal Zen is clearly viewed as a thorn in the side of the regime, as well as those people in Hong Kong who have decided to throw their lot in with the communist regime in Beijing. So it's not surprising in that sense. He was basically accused of collusion with foreign forces, which is a very standard Chinese communist way of talking about how they deal with people who they don't like, and they were arrested. I want to interject here real quick that this uh, this is one of the things about this national security law is that the terms of it are so incredibly broad that there's almost nothing that couldn't be construed to be a violation, to be some form of sedition under this national security law. In our film, Benedict Rogers, uh, who is in London, runs Hong Kong Watch, uh, quite simply says, you know, me sitting here in London criticizing the Chinese Communist Party and what is transpiring in Hong Kong every day, he is in violation of the national security law. It's extraterritorial. It's retroactive. It is one of it, it is an absolute um, it is absolutely 
repulsive to anyone who believes in the concept of the rule of law. Sorry, Sam. No, it's okay. Well, communists and communism has never believed in, they never believed in the rule of law. For them, rule of law is simply a bourgeois construct designed to protect the bourgeois people from the righteous wrath of the proletariat. So we shouldn't be surprised by any of that. Um, now, they released Cardinal Zen, but this reflects the pattern that the regime has used with regard to other people like Jimmy Lai. They arrest them, they let them go, they arrest them again, they let them go, they arrest them again, and then they hold them, and they hold them, and they put them on trial, and then we'll see what happens after that. So it fits the pattern of how the regime has dealt with figures like Jimmy Lai, people like um, uh, Cardinal Zen, when it comes to the way in which the regime proceeds against these people. It's a drip-drip approach followed by eventually ratcheting up the degree of pressure that's put on these people. <clears throat> now, you asked also about the reaction of the Holy See uh, to these events. Uh, the only way to describe charitably the reaction of the Holy See to these events is there's one word, and the word is pathetic. It's pathetic. Because we have here a member of the College of Cardinals, a distinguished man who has played a major role in helping Chinese Catholics who are, after all, like other Christians, active Christians in China, uh, persecuted, harassed, etc. And all they can say is they're basically watching the situation with some concern. Uh, this is worse and even more pathetic than the Ostpolitik policies that were pursued in the 1960s and 1970s by the Holy See, because at least then, when uh, something terrible happened to someone behind the Iron Curtain, more often than not, the Holy See would let its displeasure be known. And they would do so uh, using particular forms of words, uh, that would strike us as being somewhat lame. But nonetheless, <clears throat> there, were, there were protests lodged, there were complaints made. So, But it, it's very clear, I think, that at least at the very top of the Holy See, who have, which is, of course, the Pope, the Pope plainly believes that this, this, this approach that the Holy See has been using since they signed this secret agreement, which we don't know anything about, he is apparently willing to sacrifice a great deal for the maintenance of that agreement, despite the fact that that agreement does not appear to have delivered very much to the church. Now, one thing it has delivered is, of course, is uh, communion of all the bishops with the Pope. Now, for Catholics, that's a particularly important thing. But nonetheless, even Cardinal Parolin, who's the Vatican Secretary of State, has made it known that he hopes to change aspects of the agreement between China and the Holy See. But I think the main obstacle to any substantive change to that agreement that would give the Holy See uh, somewhat <laughs> more leverage when it comes to trying to deal with this very difficult situation that it's dealing with, I think the main obstacle is the Pope. Because I think he really believes that you can deal with regimes like this if only you deal with them on a personal level, if you can somehow uh, arrive at some type of relationship with these people. And it, you know, he talks about it's all about open processes, open dialogue, etc. Well, I'm sorry, but when you're dealing with a communist regime like the regime in Beijing... Uh, Communists will take that for what it is. They're not interested in dialogue. They're interested in control. 
And so the Holy See, I think, which, as I've said before on this program, has become more and more um, irrelevant in many respects to international relations, a process, by the way, which did not begin with Francis. I think this has been going on for some time. Towards the end of John Paul II's pontificate, I think this became more and more evident. But at least in terms of uh, Francis, I think that he really believes that if you have these sort of open channels and this dialogue going on, then you can resolve all sorts of problems. Well, clearly it's not working. It's clearly not working. And even some people who are fervent defenders of Francis, no matter what he says, I've noticed have gone very, very quiet about what's happening in China because it is indefensible. What do we know if anything, about this agreement that we don't know the content of? Is there anything we know? Is there what, – what do we believe is included in there if we don't know specifically what is in there? Well, I think what we, uh, we believe is in there is that it regularizes the process by which bishops are appointed to Chinese dioceses. Now, as I said before, this is important for Catholics. It's important for Catholics because Catholic bishops need to be in communion with Rome. That's extremely important for the unity of the church, extremely important for the unity of the church. So um, it's this, this agreement, the terms of it are not known, but it's basically hypothesize that the Holy See is committed to working with the Chinese government to basically go through different candidates for the episcopate until the Pope appoints a bishop who is also welcome by the regime in Beijing. So we believe, because we don't know, that the Pope maintains some autonomy in choosing bishops. That's, that's important, but it has to be ultimately approved by Beijing. So that's the concrete giveaway that I think we know is in the agreement. The rest of it is, is uh, very opaque. My suspicion is that even people in the Secretariat of State who are known for this yearning for to be treated like, frankly, European Union diplomats, that's the way that they look at the world, um, I really do think that there are even people in the Secretary of State who really believed in the whole Ostpolitik approach. That's a very much a cultural phenomenon that has marked the Secretary of State for since the 1960s, really. I think even there, there are people in the Secretary of State who realize and understand that this is a very bad deal. One of the important things to point out with, with this is, uh, I mean, there are two important things that strike me. One is that when Cardinal Zen was arrested, he was not arrested alone. Um, there was also a senior barrister, uh, a sort of pop star, a, a former lawmaker, and a former academic. So what Cardinal Zen is doing in, Hing- in Hong Kong is he is leading a movement within civil society. It is not merely the church. Um, and he is respected in Hong Kong for these reasons among pro-democracy advocates who, who aren't Catholic. Um, and I think, I think that's very important to realize that, that this would not be happening if Cardinal Zen were not 
a particularly strong witness and leader in civil society, which is what we want our bishops to be. Um, this is this is something that we we desire. The other thing to think about, particularly when we're talking in the context of these these agreements, is this is sort of a perennial struggle with the temporal power, um, because. The Pope is not only head of the church, but he is the head of a state. We talk about the Vatican Secretariat of State um, as facilitating these agreements. And this is something that the church has always struggled with. Um, this is, you know, was a struggle um, for the life of the church, because even briefly when the, when the church did not have the temporal power between uh, the First Vatican Council and its reestablishment um, through an agreement with Mussolini, um, the popes did not um, recognize that that lack of temporal. Uh, they thought this was important to the independence of the church. But as we see here, that can often complicate these things. Pope Francis recently was talking to Patriarch Krill in the Russian Federation about the issues in the Ukraine. And he implored Patriarch Krill. He said, brother, we are not state clerics. We cannot use the language of politics, but that of Jesus. And I think this shows that that what Pope Francis is asking of Patriarch Krill is something that he has a great difficulty himself doing. Correct. Um, and that is a challenge of um, of being in this situation, um, and it is it is these are these are difficult waters to navigate. Um, but it does, and it can, and it does often compromise the church's moral witness, um, and that's very unfortunate. What should be saying the reaction from? The Holy See. If you were advising the Holy Father on how to react to uh, what is now transpiring in Hong Kong, you're brought in today. What advice do you give? Well, Holy Father, I think I would say the first thing to understand is the nature of the regime in China. It's a communist, nationalist, authoritarian regime. They are playing you for all they can, uh, because they view things like religious freedom as threats to the regime. Uh, And your role here is not to be giving aid and comfort to a regime that is plainly against those sorts of things. The second thing I would say is, Holy Father, yes, you are the head of a state. Uh, As Dan said, that's absolutely correct. But your job is not to behave like a head of state. Your job is to behave like uh, the successor of Peter, the the person who is responsible for the overall overall well-being of the church when it comes to defense of faith and morals and the unity of the church. You should be focusing upon those sorts of things uh, because diplomacy of the type that is being engaged in is plainly not working. It is, in fact, enfeebling the witness of the church to defend uh, those members of the flock who are clearly under pressure 
from a regime that is bent upon the subordination of everything in its realm to its authority, including the church. So it's time to behave like uh, an even, an e- a person who is committed to preaching and promoting the gospel instead of a third-rate European Union diplomat. The arrest of Cardinal Zen, uh, to give some background on what it is connected to, um, he was a trustee of the 612 Humanitarian Relief Fund, which is this fund that was set up in June of 2019 uh, to provide financial aid and legal advice for protesters who were injured or arrested in the protests that have been transpiring in Hong Kong there. The fund ceased operating uh, at some point last year. Um, after national security police announced that they had launched an investigation into its donation sources and whether its operations involved any contravention of the national security law. And again, remember that this national security law is basically the star chamber, right? It, it means anything that the Chinese Communist Party wants it to mean towards their ends. And their ends are shutting down a lot of the free expression of – belief of association of religion that had been previously protected in Hong Kong. Um, the, there's a statement I'm trying to remember in, in our film, the Hong Konger, uh, who it is from, I believe it is from, uh, Lord Alton who says that there's this, you know, this directorate from the Chinese communist party, uh, implore, basically commanding a great struggle against Western values and to the CCP. And the unfortunate thing for the Hong Kong people is that they are the embodiment. They were the embodiment of Western values in a Chinese form right next door to the motherland. So this is the reason why this is happening to Hong Kong. And as you see in the film, just how quickly there's supposed to be 50 years from the handover where things were supposed to stay the same in Hong Kong. It is, I believe, not 25 years later now. And pretty much all these concepts of freedom in Hong Kong are gone as the Chinese Communist Party has taken over. In that regard, Eric, I think it's very important to want to remember that this fits the general pattern of the Chinese regime of not abiding by commitments that it makes, right? So it's not just, as you mentioned, the Hong Kong situation. They've accelerated the process in a particular way. But, but think about things like the agreements that the Chinese regime entered into when it, went, when it entered the WTO, right? So it has systematically violated all sorts of provisions under the WTO uh, that it was obli- the Chinese regime was obliged to sign up to as a condition of entering into the World Tra- Trade Organization and getting wider access to global markets. There's plenty of evidence that suggests that the Chinese regime systematically and routinely bi- violates all those things as well. So basically, agreements that China makes are not worth the, p- the paper that they're written on. And the agreement we have here between the Holy See and the Chinese Communist Party, is one that is meant to what? To maintain the unity of the church. And the church is a Catholic institution. It is a global institution that transcends political boundaries. And yet the grounds on which Cardinal Zen was arrested 
were grounds of collusion with foreign forces. This is something that could potentially be used against any Catholic bishop in China because as much as there is unity in the church, they are engaged in a collegial enterprise with their fellow bishops in the leadership of the church. Um, And those bishops are not all Chinese. How do you – I guess this is my question then. So how – how does the church navigate these waters where you have Catholics in China, um, as Sam pointed out earlier, being in communion with Rome is incredibly important to Catholics. Um, and for what – again, what we know about this agreement, as, as Sam detailed, uh, it, it too, like the national security law, seems like a bit of a star chamber. that We just – we have no idea what's actually written on it. And again, as you pointed out – China doesn't stick to its agreements, right? I mean, in the what Sam was just referencing with regard to the World Trade Organization, right? I mean, one of the biggest complaints that American firms have had about China, while they do continue to do business with them, is the stealing of intellectual property. There's just, as again, I keep referencing things that Sam has said, but he's laid them out so well here. There is no belief in the concept of the rule of law, right? You know, there just, there is not, and there's no operation by it. So how do you, as the Catholic Church, effectively navigate those waters where you're probably looking at it from the point of view of, they would probably say the alternative to this agreement is not a better agreement. The alternative to this agreement is no agreement whatsoever. And the like, you know, breaking off with Catholics in China, not having a say at all in who the bishops of these dioceses are going to be. How do you navigate that? And I think this is related to the other question that I want to ask, which is less one specifically about the Catholic Church and one more about just us generally, which is something that has been in my mind since we started making this movie. Why is it so difficult for people to just state the clear truth about China? Now, I understand we've talked about this before, the allure of money and what separates this from the Soviet Union is, I think, an economic matter. That we are have become enmeshed and entangled economically with China in a way that it just wasn't possible to become economically enmeshed and entangled with the Soviet Union. The, the problem – there were many problems with the Soviet Union. But one of the key problems was the instability of its economy. And even up until late late points, there were still people who thought the Soviet Union was much stronger than it was. And the next thing you know, it's like the line I keep quoting from – um, I can't remember who it's from about going bankrupt, right? How does it happen? Very slowly and then all of a sudden. And that's the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, we are enmeshed economically with China in a way that makes it hard for people who have financial interests to stand up and call evil evil. But there is just seems to be a general reticence to say this, the things about China that were equal – they're equally true of them – as were true of the Soviet Union. Um, But perhaps I'm just remembering things that didn't actually happen um, and that we weren't as forceful. There were clearly people who were forceful about the nature of the Soviet Union. Reagan calling them an evil empire is the clearest example of that. But I'm just – I'm – just sitting here taking stock of the lack of courage and the lack of clarity for people when they speak 
about China? Well, uh, it's it's partly economic. I think that's right. That is what makes many Western governments reluctant to talk about not just things like what's happening with Cardinal Zen, but also what's happening to Uyghur Muslims, for example. The silence of Western governments on these issues is is quite stark. So that's one thing. The second thing, however, is that <clears throat> I think many Western policymakers have made the mistake of assuming that the regime in Beijing, but also Chinese political culture as a whole, which of course goes back 4,000 years, that somehow we, we, we make the mistake of reading our assumptions and our priorities onto them. And then we, we, we're befuddled when we discover that, no, that's not actually how China views the world. That's not how China thinks about all sorts of things. So I think we have talked ourselves into a situation whereby we're thinking that somehow they would just respond if we treat them in the way that we would treat, say, I don't know, a country like Hungary, for example, that's perceived by many people to be behaving in a way that's not in conformity with the rules or whatever you want to call them of international liberal order. So I think this this is part of it. And it's also, I think, frankly, the inability to to say that some types of regimes, some types of governments are plainly, deeply problematic. And it's only when things get really bad, like as we've seen in the case of Russia, that the gloves come off rhetorically. Think back to the 1930s, the way that many Westerners talked about National Socialist Germany, fascist Italy, the Soviet Union... There were people at the time, governments at the time, who were very reluctant to critique the obviously bad things that were going on in there. And I think it was a, partly because there was an unwillingness to look these regimes and acknowledge them, at least publicly, acknowledge their nature in public. So it's not a new problem, I guess I'm saying. We seem to have this difficulty when it comes to certain types of regimes of, to use that old cliche, speaking truth to power. One of the things, I think the place that, that you need to begin is that you need to begin with disenchantment because there is, on the one hand, there's an ambival a troubling ambivalence among the general public, politicians, heads of state about what's going on. But there's also another thing going on where there are many people that are looking to China as a model. Yes, who see this regime not merely as, you know, something we don't want to talk about, but something that we want to talk up. And that is where it needs to begin. It needs to be, and you see this in the history of, of America's disenchantment with the Soviet Union. Um, you see people who were at one point's if not out-and-out out communists, folks who were captivated by the possibilities of what they saw going on in the Soviet Union, who stepped back from that and then became strong critics from that. I don't think we have a Whitaker Chambers yet of those folks who had been enamored with the Chinese regime and have woken up to the truly sort of monstrous underpinnings of what's going on there. 
I'm glad I'm glad that you brought that up because we've I, I've brought up before something that has struck me about the difference between uh, the threat of China and the threat from the Soviet Union that we've certainly seen people who have been spies. Uh, we've read, heard and read stories about spies on behalf of the Chinese government here in the United States. And what in almost every case seems to be true is that these are people who are looking to make money. That was why they were doing what they're doing for China. As opposed to the legacy of the Soviet Union and Soviet spies in the United States, these were people primarily with ideological commitments to the vision of the Soviet Union. And one of the things that to me has just generally been true is um, at least amongst that class of people who have been willing to act as agents of the Chinese government in other places around the world, that by and large, they are not doing it out of ideological commitment to the vision of China. But there are, as you have pointed out, people interested in that vision that China has for what a modern state should look like. And yes, why and I'm glad on you... the right and on the left, by it, the way. Yes, I was going to say, one of the <laughs> right. things that has been interesting to me in not who has uh, – in, in the who has not had much to say about what happened to Cardinal Zen is a cadre of people in the Catholic integralist world who are interested in the Catholic Church basically being the state – but here do not have a whole heck of a lot to say about a Catholic cardinal being arrested by the state that they seem to be somewhat enamored with. I think that is something that should be pointed out. We've even some of these people, seen some of these people articulate defenses of China at different points. We've seen entire magazines um, tell us how wonderful China is, how China is moving in a particular direction. I've even heard one prominent, not an integralist, but a person who is very active in economic nationalist circles, say publicly that he'd be very happy to move to China. So, so this, as you say, this is, it's, you know, it's interesting because it is financial in some cases, right? That's very clear with some of these people who you mentioned have been caught doing certain things, uh, intellectual property theft, etc. But it's surprising there is some sympathy for Chinese authoritarianism, not just on the right, but on parts of the left as well. And some of those people have gone very quiet uh, recently. So, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not a new problem. I mean, we've had people like this around for a long time. Even think about the 1970s, right? There were people in the 1970s in America who were telling us, well, yes, we just have to learn to live with the Soviets as they are. We even had presidents of the United States saying that the Soviet Union did not exercise uh, a dictatorship over Eastern Europe. Remember that? I mean, it's uh, the, our ability to deny reality never ceases to amaze me. And, and the argument, too, to, to reference one of these individuals, um, Saurabh Amari, who back in 2021, I will read you what he had to say and then deleted. I am at peace with a Chinese-led 21st century. Late liberal America is too dumb and decadent to last as a superpower. Chinese civilization, especially if it recovers more of its Confucian roots, will possess a great deal of natural virtue, which is just the, the expression of uh, what seems to be the argument here, that uh, China is a more virtuous place. 
than the United States of America or these nations in the West is just madcap to me. You know, I'm I'm sure the people speaking these kinds of things like Sorab would not be surprised to hear that I think it's batty. But just this suggestion that this is some paragon of virtue, not that it's, you know, not even defending it kind of in that awful, you know, well, you know, sometimes you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet kind of a way that some of these things are unnecessary or unfortunate, uh, not unnecessary. They may be they are necessary. And they may be unfortunate. And boy, we sure wish they didn't need to do those kinds of things. But, you know, you understand there's a bigger goal here. And that seems to be the kind of argument uh, with regard to China that I'm not hearing from these people, that they seem to be bought in on this notion that China is somehow more virtuous than us. Perhaps here is where we should move to our second topic for today, which is once again discussing problems with inflation. And we'll look uh, at the, in this case, not as much of a description of what is going on out there, because um, I'll read you an excerpt here to give you the lay of the land from uh, the Morning Dispatch newsletter. Uh, The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported on Wednesday, the consumer price index rose 8.3% year over year in April, a slight decrease from March's 8.5% and the first drop in the annual numbers since August's head fake. The 0.3% CPI increase from March to April was the measure's slowest pace since January 2021, and several staples, gas, clothing, smartphones, used cars, ham, actually got cheaper over that time frame. But even that glimmer of optimism comes with a boatload of caveats. Gas prices have crept back up since uh, BLS researchers last conducted their monthly survey. Regular gas hit a record high of $4.40 per gallon on Wednesday, uh, according to AAA. And the average grocery store trip now costs nearly 11% more than it did a year ago. If you strip out these two more volatile categories, energy and food, the resulting core month-over-month inflation registers at 0.6% in April double both April's top line figure and March's core data. And uh, the phenomenon that uh, the Morning Dispatcher outlined a few months ago, uh, inflation filtering through the economy from goods into services continue to pace with more common commodities holding steady month over month while core services jumped 0.7%. So the argument here is it's bad. Um, It is the second worst uh, month over month number that we've seen, but it is the second worst after we saw the worst. So perhaps there's some reason for optimism there. Um, Nevertheless, uh, people with bad ideas manage to show up all the time in these situations. Uh, Here is a tweet from Joe Biden, president of the United States. You want to bring down inflation. Let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. These he might as well have said because vests have sleeves. These things have don't have sleeves. These things have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. Uh, and bringing even more joy to the party here, uh, report U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says Democrats will next week present a bill on gasoline price gouging. The bill will enable the president to issue emergency declaration, making it illegal to increase the price of gasoline. Quote, price gouging needs to be stopped. Uh, we published this morning... From the most recent edition of Religion and Liberty, our magazine, which we encourage you to check out, a piece from Ann Bradley asking the question that we've discussed here in this program before, are we reliving the 1970s? And boy, if we get 
a le- legislation or presidential action to prevent the raising of gasoline prices, which will inevitably uh, result in what, kids? Shortages, gas lines. Boy, it sure does start to look a lot more like we are reliving the 1970s, aren't we? Well, it's extraordinary uh, the degree to which we've talked about denial of reality with regard to China. We're seeing it now, of course, with the way that different groups are reacting to these inflation numbers. Now, as you, as I think you pointed out, Eric, the numbers are very mixed, right? So uh, food prices went up 9.4%. That's the most since April 1981. Prices also increased faster for things like shelter, i.e. housing and new vehicles. So um, <clears throat> while some things went up, some, some things went down, now, some people are suggesting that this means that inflation is probably peaked. We'll see. But we also know that it's unlikely that inflation is going to fall to pre-pandemic levels anytime soon. And it's probably going to remain above the Fed's 2% target for a long time. It could be the case that the market is, is factoring in expectations that the Fed will continue to raise interest rates. I mean, this is how this game works, right? So it's not just about literally um, uh, raising interest rates. It's also the expectations of these things, what economists call inflationary expectations that may be affecting this. Now, this assumes, of course, that the Fed will will do what it has said that it will do or the signal that it will do. Uh, so that's a good thing. But as I've said before in this program, we should remember that the Fed is not exactly dominated by monetary inflation, inflation hawks. It's not. It's dominated by people who are essentially doves on these types of subjects. But we're also seeing uh, these this constant invoking of non sequiturs by political leaders who, as you say say things like, well, inflation has to do with corporations not paying enough tax. It was actually Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, who responded to President Biden and said, Mr. President, this has got nothing to do with corporation tax. This has got to do with the fact that the federal government pumped lots of stimulus money into the economy. The Federal Reserve lowered interest rates, engaged in quantitative easing, That's the cause of inflation. It's got nothing to do with corporations not paying what President Biden believes is enough by way of taxation. Monetary inflation is is and always a monetary phenomena. The people, as Milton Friedman said, the people who are responsible for the money supply are the federal government and the Federal Reserve. No one else. (laughs) So... So, but of course, um, uh, we're talking about a politician who is very much a guy from the 1970s. And I think the administration and plenty of other politicians are just rolling out these non sequiturs as a way of trying to distract us from the fact there have been serious failures in monetary policy over the past two years, some would say going all the way back to the, the financial crisis, and the chickens have come home to roost. And there's a reluctance on the part of the political class to admit this. You're right with that Milton Friedman line that inflation all times everywhere is a monetary phenomenon. There is one other thing to add into all of this, though, that we should note, which is if inflation is uh, too much demand chasing too little supply – 
we also have too little supply, not just because we have pumped so much money into the economy because we decided it would be uh, a, a just a jolly good idea to spend something like nine trillion dollars in two years. Um, by the way, don't know if anybody saw the story about how there's an estimate of like what, a hundred, at least one hundred and sixty eight billion, I think billion, billion with a B of money that has been lost to uh, waste, fraud, and abuse from all of the COVID spending that is just almost certainly never going to be reclaimed. It's never going to be gotten back. A hundred, and I think it's $168 billion. I'll, I'll double check that number. But in addition to the purely monetary phenomenon part of this, um, we also have to add in all the supply chain problems that were created by the COVID-19 pandemic and the responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, there are supply chain issues, to go back and touch on China for a moment here, um, that are we're going to be living with for a while because China's policy on COVID-19 is COVID-0, that they're going to eradicate it entirely from their country, which has meant uh, – major shutdowns in Shanghai, which is just a major point of intersection for supply chains all around the world. So we have the supply chain problem created lack of supply. And then we boosted the amount of demand by just giving people money and let them to chase after an artificially low level of goods because of all of the supply chain problems. And it is, here I am again, just expressing amazement that especially for Joe Biden, as who as Sam pointed out, um, Richard Nixon was still the president of the United States when Joe Biden entered the United States Senate, I believe in 1971 was the year that he entered the United States Senate. He was there through all of these problems in the 1970s. He saw, was in the Senate, and saw what happened to Jimmy Carter's presidency because of inflation. And it shouldn't be amazing to me, but it still is amazing to me that the inclination for the responses to this problem are the same responses Engaged in by the Nixon administration, certainly by the uh, the lack of action, the uh, Jimmy Carter, the only thing he has yet to do, Joe Biden, is come out in a very fetching sweater to tell us that we're the problem, not the actions that the federal government has chosen to take that have created this crisis. And let's not forget, Eric, that that the Biden administration has some responsibility here as well, right? Of I mean, course. They were pumping money into the economy. They, and I mean, the Trump administration. The Trump yes. administration yes. also signed off on enormous amounts of spending, yes. COVID-related. It was, why did we get another $1,500 or whatever it was in stimulus checks that were authorized by the Biden administration and, and the Democrat democratically controlled Congress? It was President Trump who was the one who said we should get another $1,200 or $1,500. Yes. Yes. I mean, this is what I mean. It goes across the political class. It's, it's, it's the Biden administration is a Democratic administration in power right now, but let's remember that the Trump administration is also partly responsible for this mess. It is, and I want to get Dan in here as I keep. We both keep interrupting him, and I know he's got something to say. But it is, it is amazing again to me that we just all kind of forgot. We didn't here at the Acton Institute, but a lot of people just kind of forgot and thought we were living in a world where we didn't need to be concerned about inflation anymore. And they acted and made decisions as if the problem of inflation was not somewhere in the back of their minds. And it, there's a psychological element of inflation as well that, you know, it 
it drives people crazy when they know they're going to the store and the price, it gets more to buy the same thing every things every week and it's costing you more and more money. You start feel like you're losing your mind a little. We've not only forgotten sort of the basic economics, we have also forgotten the bad economic theory. One of the ways that this is different than the responses of the Nixon administration is remember Nixon administration was interested in both wage and price controls. Nobody is talking about wage inflation and nobody is talking about how we need to clamp down on all of these people receiving more money, which any of the standard sort of center-left economists of the 1970s who then sort of dominated the profession would have argued for. When we get the language that President Biden has employed about, you know, we're going to fight inflation by clawing back this money from the rich, this is the argument that the modern monetarists monetary theorists made is that if you ever have inflation, all you need to do is take the money back. Right. However, what appetite is there right now for huge tax increases? Well, and what appetite is there for hugely increasing taxes and then setting that money on fire? (laughs) Because there has not been an abandonment. At the rate rate that we seem to be uh, figuratively setting money on fire, maybe literally doing it might actually, there might be appetite for that. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, this is the thing. It's it's a total – I mean, and this is where it's very, very interesting and I think this is a very big contrast for the sev- from the 70s is I think econom- economists, both of the left and the right, are not leading this public policy debate. What you are getting is sort of ad hoc political demagoguery, divorced from any theory, right or wrong. Um that fails to grapple with this issue in any of its complexity. And let's remember also that there's this thing called asset price inflation that's going on as well, which no one's talking about. And anybody who has uh, knows anybody who has tried to buy a house or has bought a house recently certainly knows a lot about asset price inflation. I mean, I, I look at property listings here in Grand Rapids on a regular basis. And, you know, they, I, I ended up um, when I was before I moved up here renting an Airbnb that happened to be just happened to be owned by someone who is a professor of economics um, who you know, sees the uh, sees the world very similarly to the way that we do here at the Acton Institute. And I remember him telling me that right now, if you want to buy um, a place uh, in Grand Rapids, you're probably going to pay somewhere around 25 percent above what the list price is. You're going to waive inspection. Um, it is all the terms are on the, the the seller side because of the the insanity to the housing market. So we've we've heaped some scorn on. Um, you know, uh, as Sam pointed out, uh, that this was a bipartisan problem, um, both Republicans and Democrats engaging in policy choices that have helped create this problem we're dealing with right now. It is also cross ideological in that the rise of this faction of the new right, one of the things that stuck out about them to me is that um, I, I think there are certain clear 
economic truths that exist. We've referenced one of them about you know, Milton Friedman's line on it being a monetary phenomenon when you get inflation. Um, there, there are rules of economics, right, that you can choose to recognize or not recognize and perhaps reap the whirlwind if you choose not to recognize them. And there just seems to have me to be a whole lot of people in that new right faction that anytime you bring up the economic arguments – against the kind of policy actions that they want to take. Uh, To me, the response I get all the time is like, you know, oh, you're you're suggesting that political economy doesn't exist, that we don't make political decisions about economic choices. Like, no, of course we do. But it has just been most clearly expressed, as Dan brought up with the modern monetary theorists, this desire to just think that we can disregard everything that we've learned about economics. Now, this is not to say that every decision that needs to be made by a polity needs to be an you know primarily motivated by economic concerns well part of political economy remember is the economy part right? yes so, <laughs> so good political economy which involves bringing together value commitments when you're thinking about the right types of economic decisions to make it, it involves you know you you will prioritize certain values as being important liberty justice rule of law etc but you also factor into that decision some of these economic truths that you just mentioned. So there's no political economy without paying attention to economic truths. And that's something that our friends, some of our friends on the right are very dismissive of. That, yeah, and that seems to be the desire, is to just not have to deal with the economic truths part of it anymore. I mean, again, you can, in, in a political economy context, you can come up with places where those economic truths can come into at least tension, if not conflict, with those values. But you just can't dismiss the economics part of it. It just seems like there are a whole lot of people out there who really wish the laws of economics just didn't apply so that they could manifest the society that they would like to see. And you you have to grapple with this at some point, and they just don't seem all that interested in it. If anybody wants a great a great guide to this, and part of this is uh, the introduction to Ludwig von Mises' human action in what economics is and why economics is a new science in, you know, at, at, at the time of its arising is because there is a regularity to social cooperation. There are certain laws. There are certain things that politics cannot transcend through sheer acts of will, Um, that there is a certain logic to action itself that economics helps us to see. And that is something that when it's brought to bear on questions of politics, as it has been through what we call the great enrichment in which, you know, the tremendous dynamism of human social cooperation has been unleashed. Like that, that is something that's lost on a lot of people. The idea that um, economics is not merely the servant of whatever politics you put into place. Social cooperation happens according to the way that it's mandated. That's just... If that was so, there would be no reason for economics to exist. And in fact, there would then be no reason for all of the problems we have other than, you know, I mean, you could 
potentially make the case that everyone has just always ruled poorly <laughs> and that's why we all have problems. But I think we all know at bottom that our problems are more difficult than that. Wilhelm Robke, the great German auto-liberal economist, he made the point, it's very similar to what Dan was just saying, that economics is about, uh, in many respects, a logic of tracing the tr logic of relationships. That if you do this, the following things are likely to happen. That doesn't, it's, it's, a, it's not a normative statement. It's a positive statement. And if you ignore what is likely to happen, which has been well established by theory and lots of good, solid empirical study over a long period of time, you can ignore it as you want. Like you said, uh, both of you have said, you can ignore it if you want. But if you do, you will end up with problems, no matter how much you wish that you don't. Yeah, I think there is, to me, a kind of creeping, quiet utopianism that exists in some of these segments of the new right in that belief that we, we just don't have to factor these things in, that we can manifest the world that we want to have if we simply have the will to make it happen. It's very Nietzsche, and Stephanie Slade's piece on the, the will to power right is, is a good one. We'll drop that in the show notes as well. But there's a, to me, a utopian quality in there that uh, perhaps to go back to Matthew Continetti's new book, The Right, um, can exist comfortably in a right-wing context, but to me, in a proper understanding of conservatism, does not and cannot exist, and certainly does not exist in a libertarian understanding either, it, it, pretty anti-utopian ideology. But a true, to me, a true good conservative, especially American conservative understanding, is going to have to be anti-utopian. To me, in lining up very well with the sentiments uh, of the first wave of the neoconservatives, who basically thought that you're not going to um, achieve a whole bunch of radical changes. And if you did achieve a whole bunch of radical changes, it would be incredibly disruptive and that our mission is to try to make things just slightly better over time because this is a fallen world and we are fallen creatures and we're never going to be able to craft the, you know, the sunny uplands of history. We're not marching there just uh, in, in a very Marxist way. It was just, this is just our destiny. It is, it is not. But I, I see this streak of kind of this utopian thinking that we can, without consequence, ignore things that are inconvenient to the way we would like to reshape the world. Let's call it a wrap there. I want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast again on our website, I want you to look in the show notes for this episode where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.